Today we're going to start a, uh, a new series. It's called Perspectives. And um, if you go on the website, you'll see this graphic that you'll see behind me next week. But there are three glasses on the front of your bulletin. You got one that's empty, one that's half full, and one that's all full. What we're going to do as we go through the life of Joseph is we're going to look at what perspectives really are. We're going to get a sense of why perspective is so incredibly important. And we're going to understand what a proper perspective is. Some people, for example, would say that glass in the middle is half empty. Some would say it's half full. The question is, what is it really? And whether you're an optimist or a pessimist is irrelevant. What's important is that you're a realist. As we go through the life of Joseph, my hope is that we're all going to become more realistic with a proper perspective. I've got to give you a warning. These first two, two sermons, they, they tie in together, and they were um, the second one more so than the first. They were kind of bothersome to me as I put them together. I was really wrestling with, with some of the stuff I was thinking through. Um, and, and we'll prep for that this week, um, and next week we'll really get into that. So just be forewarned. But in this series, there, there are two primary goals. The first goal is to get to know Joseph better. This is not the Mary and Joseph Joseph. This is the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's son, Joseph, Joseph. Okay. Today's sermon is uh, Genesis 37 through 50. So if you ever wonder how I read through so much of the Bible, well, check this out. I'll, I'll highlight 13 chapters of the Bible in under five minutes. And at that pace, if you want to hang around, we can get through the whole Old Testament before 2 o'clock this afternoon. And if you want to stay through dinner, we can read the whole Bible. But we're going to get to know Joseph better, but more importantly, we're going to get to know God better. That's the main focus of this, is for us to more understand who God really is and what God really is up to in and through our lives. The reason we do this, there are two passages um, that, that make us know it's important to look at people's lives. Romans 15.4 is one, and 1 Corinthians 10.11 are another. Those are two passages where, where Paul explains to us the reason we're given the Old Testament, the reason we're given the lies, the biographical sketches through the Old Testament are for examples to us. Uh, and we're going to look at those examples today. So if you hang on, I'll take you on a 30,000 foot trip from Genesis chapter 37 all the way through Genesis 50. And then what we're going to do over the next however many weeks, I don't know how many yet, is come down and land places along the way. So today we're looking at the, the landscape, getting a feel for the topography, and then we'll start coming in a little closer next week. So who's Joseph? Well, Joseph is a guy from a messed up family. Anyone come from a large family? How many siblings? What's, what's the largest number of siblings? Six? Nice. Five, four. Jo- Joseph, Joseph was a uh, family of 13. He had um, 11 brothers and a sister. Can you imagine being the sister in that family? Maybe that's a sermon for another time. But he had 11 brothers, and 10 of them hated him. And I don't mean they kind of tussled a little bit. 10 of the brothers really hated him, and they tried to kill him, except there was this one brother who stepped in at the last moment and saved him. We'll get to that in a second. Joseph's father was a man named Jacob. Jacob had all of his children by four women. That never goes well, does it? He had two wives and two maidservants. He had Rachel and he had Leah, were his wives. They came from Laban, which is a story before, where uh, too many J's. He got tricked, and then they had the maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah. So he's got all his kids by four women. That's set up to go wrong. Well, Joseph came from Rachel, 
And Rachel couldn't have kids initially, and she was his favorite wife, and he, he preferred her over the other wife and the maidservants. And when Joseph was finally born, that was his favorite kid. Now, if you ever show uh, preferential treatment to kids, you know it can cause some issues. Could you imagine showing preferential treatment along the lines of, you bestow a robe of royal honor upon your child and tell him he doesn't need to go tend the flocks, you can hang out with me, and you be in charge of your brothers, and you report back to me what they're doing, and we'll take care of it together. Well, that was kind of the Jacob-Joseph relationship. So one day, Jacob sent Joseph to go check on his brothers who were tending some sheep about 80 miles away. Now, he didn't hop in the new car. He didn't take a mass transit. He walked 80 miles. He was a kid, but he made it just fine. And as he was approaching, there's a little story about a dream we'll get to, but as that infuriated his brothers, as he was approaching, his brothers saw him coming, and they started to plot how they would kill him. And when he was coming in, they figured out how they were going to kill him, and his older, oldest brother, Reuben, said, let's not kill him, let's just throw him in a pit, because Reuben decided he was going to save him. Now, if you know Reuben, you might wonder why he did that, because Reuben had a little issue with his dad's uh, maidservant sleeping with one of them, which is earlier in the story, before we get to chapter 37. So Reuben might have had some ulterior motives about getting himself in better position, so he said, don't kill him, maybe I'll drag him back home and get in dad's good graces again, because he was kind of on the out. So, they took Joseph, and they threw him in a pit, and they were figuring out what they were going to do with him, and then some slave traders came by, and they had this great idea, oh, let's sell him to the slave traders, at least we can make some money on the kid, and then we'll go home and tell daddy died, and we'll tear up and bloody up his robe, and we'll go. So Joseph ends up sold to slave traders on their way to Egypt. You guys with me? We're going through the Bible quick today. And they make it all the way down to Egypt, and he gets put on the blocks. And this guy comes by, great name, Potiphar. We're considering it in place of Cletus. You never do know. Potiphar sounds like potty, though. Might not be a good nickname. Maybe we won't use it. Potiphar buys Joseph to live in his house. Potiphar was in charge of of Pharaoh's secret service for all intents and purposes. He He was the head honcho of protecting Pharaoh. And Joseph lived in his house. I need oxygen if anyone has a tank. And he lives in the house, and he, God was with him, the Bible tells us. And Joseph kept being promoted to more and more uh, positions of responsibilities until he was in charge of all of Potiphar's house, second only to Potiphar. Potiphar had a wife. We don't know her name, but we could call her Trouble. And she had the hots for Joseph. And she was hot after Joseph, day after day, and Joseph kept saying, no, no, no. One day Potiphar's wife accused him of attempted rape, and Joseph ended up in prison for doing nothing wrong. And he got stuck in prison, and he met a cupbearer and a baker, and and these guys had some dreams too. We'll talk about dreams in the coming weeks. And they had these dreams, and and Joseph interpreted their dreams. And the cupbearer was restored to power, and Joseph said to him, Don't forget about me when you go back. Tell Pharaoh I don't belong here. But guess what the cupbearer did? He forgot about Joseph. And for two more years, Joseph sat in prison for no reason, just, just kind of fading away into oblivion, completely forgotten, until one day Pharaoh had a couple freaky dreams about cows and corn. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. And the cupbearer all of a sudden, two years later, said, Oh, I remember a guy in prison interpreted my dreams, and oh, I messed up. I wasn't supposed to forget about him. So they brought Joseph out of prison, and in about 45 minutes, he went from a forgotten prisoner to the prime minister of Egypt. And he, he got there, and see, there was a famine coming. And for seven years of prosperity, he prepared the country and the world to deal with the famine. And then the seven years of the famine, he guided them through, and in doing so, he actually saved not only Egypt, but the Israelites. And Joseph lived a long, prosperous life, and hundreds of years later was buried in the Promised Land. Good? Next week, we'll do somebody else's life. That was the Joseph series, Perspectives. Have a good week. Bow your heads. I'll close with benediction. Today, I want to point out uh, three things as I went through that overview. And these three things are very much setting the stage for the entire rest of our examination in close on Joseph. And don't try to do that so fast next time. The three things we're going to focus on are God's sovereignty, God's providence, and God's goodness. 
If we don't understand those three things, we will never live our lives the way God intends. Those are big fancy terms, and we'll unpack them a little bit. But everything I talked about in this overview of Joseph's life, Joseph's life falls under the purview of God's sovereignty, God's providence, and God's goodness. And in our lives, everything falls under God's sovereignty, God's providence, and God's goodness. <clears throat> Let's start with sovereignty. First of all, can anyone spell it without looking? Don't try it. It took me three days to get it down fat. What is God's sovereignty? It's a big fancy word. You want to know the simple definition? It's ownership, authority, and control. It means that God owns everything, controls everything, and is in charge of everything. It is the underlying biblical premise. In the beginning, God created. Everything here was created by God. Now, my kids will get me on a technicality. Well, God didn't make our house. Workers made our house. You know, well, see, God made the wood and the metal and the people who made the house. God gets credit for making the house, okay? God made everything. He owns it. He controls it. And he's in charge of it. That's what sovereignty means. Now, it doesn't just... It's not just true because I say it's true. Nothing should be true except in my house dealing with children, unless I say it's true. It's true because the Bible says it's true. And I have a few verses which, um, which highlight that. They're in the Psalms. Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6 say, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever He pleases, He does. Guess what that means? God is sovereign. Psalm 115, we just flip back this way a little bit. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 103 tells us. Verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. You could spend all day going through Bible verses which explain to you that God is in charge of everything. Do you understand what that means? That means that there is nothing that has happened in your life or will happen in your life that God is not in complete control over. Same thing for Joseph. We'll conclude with this, but, but the problem with the statement I just made, I'll say it again. There is nothing that has happened in your life or will happen in your life that is not in God's complete control. The problem, which we'll deal with more next week, is has anything bad ever happened in your life? If God's sovereign, guess what that means? Ooh. I'm not going to open that can fully this week. I'm going to set the stage for that. But i got to tell you, I had some struggles with that as I was talking about it. But on the upside, there's huge upside to the bad things too. We'll talk about that next week. On the upside is, there's no out of control. No matter what's going on in your life, there is no out of control time ever. Diane shared last week some stuff going on with you. Guess what? God knew it was coming. He's got it all in control, and he knows where it's all going. The problem is, and this gets to the second part, God's providence. You know what providence means? It's his plan. It's how he orchestrates his sovereignty. Providence is God's execution of his plan. You see, here's where God is different than us. God has a perfect plan, which can't be stopped. We don't have the ability to articulate a perfect plan. It's a memory verse. Let's see if I put it in for this month. I didn't. Guess what? If you want to get a step ahead for August, 
The book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, the sovereign God, who's in control of absolutely everything, has a perfect plan for executing his will that can't be stopped. That means whatever happened in the life of Joseph, not only was God in control of, but God either caused or allowed. Joseph was sold into slavery. God was in control of that, and God wanted that to happen. Do you remember back, it was Easter. I, I talked about who killed Jesus in one of the sermons. And the conclusion was God killed Jesus. Do you remember that? That sounds pretty, pretty strange, doesn't it? Because we like to blame other people for killing Jesus. Either the Jews, you know, the Sanhedrin, um, maybe the Romans, Pilate. Pilate gets a lot of blame for killing, killing Jesus, the, the guy who crucified him. Well, the fact of the matter is God killed Jesus. Why? Because it pleased him. That's a radical statement, isn't it? Anyone here prefer that, that Jesus didn't die? You see, God's ways are not our ways. Let me ask you to do this for me. I, here, here's a really, I'm, this is a deep statement you don't know. I'm a pastor. How would you orchestrate the life of someone from birth to this present moment for me? How would you have orchestrated my life to get me where I am? Can I give it a shot? I'd have the person grow up in a Christian home. I mean, that's, that's foundational premise to be a pastor, I would think. You grow up in a Christian home, and, and your parents would, would train you up in the ways of the Lord and, and teach you a deep love and respect for God and His Word. They would bring you to church on Sundays. They would get you involved in a, in a church family and, and uh, send you off to a strong Christian college where you would have um, boundaries put around you to keep you from making bad choices. You go to seminary afterwards, and, and God will make it really clear the specific church he would have you go to right after seminary, and, and you would just be there, and, and voila, here I stand, right? Well, that's not how it worked out for me. Didn't grow up in a Christian home. Strike one? No, not strike one. Perfect placement, number one. My parents taught me absolutely nothing about God. Strike two? No, not strike two. I did not go to a Christian college. I was never brought up in a church. But see, you couldn't write my life more perfectly up to this point than God did. I had some serious bumps along the way. Joseph, you heard the story. Kid's going to save the land from a famine, right? How do you get Joseph to Egypt for a famine? Well, that's obvious. He gets some sort of shepherding uh, uh, scholarship to EU, Egypt University, and he excels there so well that Pharaoh notices him and puts him in charge of famine preparation, you know, and he's just there could skip the imprisonment and the slavery and all the other stuff like that, right? Couldn't you? Well, guess what? You can't. Because God has a perfect plan, and God's plan can't be stopped. Here's something that, that I found thoroughly interesting and, and kind of mind-boggling, and you'll probably, uh, well, no, you'll agree with me. Look at me. You will agree with me. How does God, God's in charge of everything, has a perfect plan, which means that, here's a, here's a little tidbit, which make you think a little bit. If you go to the casinos and you want to play roulette, it's a game of chance, right? There's no such thing as chance. God knows every number that thing's going to land on before the thing spins. Kind of interesting little thing. You roll dice, God knows what they're going to come up on before you roll them. These aren't games of chance. These are games of providence. 
How does God pick a president? Let's take George H.W. Bush, for example, the old Bush. Does God kind of just go through a war of attrition and whoever lives long enough he can put in the office, or does he know before you're born if you're going to be president? Which one's the truth? Sovereignty and providence. He knows before you're born. He knows how old Cletus will live to be, what Cletus will do, and everything about Cletus' life while he's still sitting in mama's belly, right? George H.W. Bush is born. He's going to be president. He doesn't know this. God knows this. Should he have been in a protective bubble? Imagine the Secret Service gets a list. Oh, we got a kid, Cletus Tripp, born here, July 21st, to be president in 54 years. We got to protect this kid so nothing bad can happen, right? You would have to be real protective. George H.W. Bush served in the Air Force in World War II. And he went on a mission that I don't think the Secret Service would have been real excited about. He went on a mission to bomb the Japanese communication stronghold in the Pacific. Suicide mission. Nobody lived through it. In fact, his plane got shot down. And eight of the guys with him got captured, beheaded, and cannibalized. But by chance, throw that word away if you believe in sovereignty and providence, but by chance, George H.W. Bush's parachute didn't open quite right. He landed four miles out to sea. And somehow, by sheer luck, throw that term out the window if you want to really understand who God is, he uh, got into a lifeboat. But uh uh-oh, the lifeboat started getting pulled in to the island. And the Japanese started coming out of the island on their boats to get future President George H.W. Bush. And as this happens, God is sitting in heaven. Like this. (gasps) 